Easter in a series called The Unusual Suspects. And we're looking at grace and what are profiles of grace in unexpected places. And this, is, this week is the last installment of that. Uh, next week, we'll be beginning a series called Rethink Church. Maybe you've seen the banner, but we're going to be rethinking the 12 pathways that we celebrate here at City Life, uh, which really are just the 12 disciplines where we see growth and where we see God build virtue in us through those 12 disciplines. So we're going to look at those in fresh ways over the coming weeks. But as you know, last week was Easter. And congratulations. Uh, it's, <laughs> we like to joke that sometimes people forget that there's church every other weeks. But there is a, a pastor, uh, Pastor Mike, who used to be a part of City Life. He's now in D.C. And he says every year, it doesn't surprise him that non-believers, that they only come to church on Christmas or Easter. But what does surprise him is when believers, Christians, people who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they only share and invite on the week of Easter. That's what surprises him. So as we start that new series next week, Rethink Church, and we got wristbands that we gave out last week. If you didn't get one uh, that say Rethink Church on one side, they got City Life VA on the other. I'm not wearing one. I should be ashamed. I'm going to grab one on the way out, and I'm going to wear it over the week. But you can do the same uh, just to get word out not only about the church, but what we celebrate here at City Life. But again, last week was Easter. And so often on Easter, we get big picture truths. Right? We get the, what you could call the gospel from the air, uh, the grace on a macro level, the redemption of creation, what it means for our lives as a whole. And, and you may ask, well, it affects my life in a major way. But what about my day-to-day? What about the place I spend 40, 50, maybe 60, maybe even 70 hours a week? And that is my workplace. And as we close out this series on grace. And as we step out of Easter, I wanted to point to how grace affects our workplace. And tonight we're going to look at the person of Stephen, but just as much as we look at the person, we're going to look at the place, which is the the place of our vocation, our workplace. Because again, our picture of grace, it often means that we celebrate our freedom on weekends, but then we step back into being a slave to the grind Monday through Friday. Sometimes there's a gap between how we see our eternal security and how we see our day-to-day grind. We live a life of duality as if there's a slice of the spectrum of our lives that, that is unaffected and remains untouched, compartmentalized. And sometimes it's because the, the teaching in the church is so limited. Right? Don't cuss with your coworkers. <laughs> don't uh, gossip with your coworkers. Don't uh, slander your coworkers. Don't go get drunk after work with your coworkers. But hey, bring your coworkers to church on the weekend, and we'll see you next week. But maybe it's, it's not that it's limited to that, but the perspective is limited. It's like we talked about last summer again and again and again. God's big enough for both. That, that it's not the way to share God in the workplace, as we so often say, but there's so many ways. You know, maybe you've heard people say, well, the way to, to share God's grace in the workplace is to practice excellence, to, to, to make excellent products. And if you do that, you'll glorify God. Or maybe you've heard people say, well, the way to to share God's grace in the workplace is to evangelize, to to make disciples of your coworkers and to make Jesus famous at your workplace. Maybe you've heard that the way to reach your workplace for God is to engage the culture through your work and and through what God's called you to do. And, And those are just three. I could go on and on of ways that we often point to as the way. But again, God's big enough for both. God's big enough for Uh, Really, each one of those are a way that God can use us at work and that grace affects 
our workplace. And, and if you looked at these factors, they can take varying levels of importance depending on what you do. If you're an artist, I aspired as a kid to be an artist because I was an introvert. I liked I, the idea of just painting by myself during the day was appealing to me and just turning on loud music and not interacting with anybody. God's called me out of that clearly. But for an artist, you know, you might, your focus might be engaging the culture. If you work in an office with hundreds, you might start a Bible study and your focus might be evangelizing the people around you, you know, sharing the faith that you have. Or if you're a carpenter, you only work with a couple people like my dad did for most of my life, your focus might be making excellent products. But no matter what you look at, the biggest game changer, again, it was the same on Easter and it's the same this week, the biggest game changer is grace. You know, Martin Luther, when he... Uh, began to understand grace in a new way personally. It, it, it gave him a message about work that was so counter to what people saw in the church at that time. And he speaks about when he was studying the book of Romans. And he says, when he was studying the book of Romans, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Now, when he got this grasp on grace, that, that salvation is a gift, it's only by grace through faith, it began to shift the way he saw work. Because at that time, the common stance was that if you wanted to do, quote unquote, God's work, then you worked in the church. And there was a line drawn between doing God's work in the church and then doing secular work out there. That wasn't deemed God's work. But it's... Stance on work was affected by a stance on grace. And, and I'm not going to ask you to remember because we just saw what happened when we asked about last week. But two weeks ago, we were talking about Nicodemus. And, and the lesson on grace with that was, is when you properly grasp God's grace, you don't work for approval. You work from assurance. When you realize that you have assurance from God, acceptance through grace and what Jesus did on the cross, you don't have to work for approval to earn his love. You don't have to work for approval to earn the respect of those around you. You can work from the assurance of the cross. And what Martin Luther realized is that if, if religious works were key to gaining good standing and approval with God, then there would always be a difference between those that work and do God's work in the church and those that work elsewhere. But... If religious work didn't earn favor with God in a special way, then it shouldn't be seen as superior to other forms of labor. That God does work through everyone equally with equal dignity. But this was, again, revolutionary in his culture. Now, our culture is much more secularized these days. And many people seek their own version of salvation through self-esteem or self-worth, through career success and climbing career ladders. But just as we don't have to prove ourselves before God because of grace, again, we don't have to prove ourselves through a career. But then you talk about all that and why work? So why are we given work? What's the, the, what's the role in the, in the good news? What's the role in God's kingdom? And to begin this conversation, I simply want to turn to a, a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. And it's a book where the author is he's searching for the meaning of life. And the central problem is presented in the third verse of the book where he asks, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Now, maybe you've never asked it in those words or phrased it in that way, but you echo it when you ask questions like, is there more to life than this? Does my work really matter? How can I better connect my work 
and my faith. Is what I do Monday through Friday meaningless or is it meaningful to God? And if as the author seems so caught up in Ecclesiastes for so long that this life is all that there is, well, then maybe it is meaningless. But if there is a greater narrative, a greater context, a greater story to be found, then there can be meaning that's found. There's a great author, a great pastor, Tim Keller. He's a prolific author. He's written many a book, and he preaches many an amazing sermon. But he speaks about worldview as a sort of defining narrative. Like, your worldview answers these questions. And the questions he gives us are, are, are how are things supposed to be? What should our lives in this world really look like? And then what's the problem? What went wrong? What knocked it off balance? And then the last question is, well, what's the solution? How can we make it right again? That's why you see some people, man, we need to find love or we need to find social justice. And people find their, their thing that they think will answer these questions. But when we take the worldview of grace and we apply it to the workplace, the, the questions we're dealing with are, why do we want to work? Like, like, sometimes work is a pain in the butt, but go without it for a while and you realize we're made for it. Like, like God put it in us to work. And if that's the case, then again, what went wrong? Because so often simultaneously, I don't really want to, right? Simultaneously, it's like, I could go without a job for a bit, right? So what happened? How do we solve that tension? Now, when you look at life as a whole, great thinkers like Plato, Marx, and Freud, they all attempted to find what was wrong with us and what could be done about it. They sought to find problems within creation that could be solved. But we know that the problem, it was outside of, it was alien to God's original creation. It was sin, which was ushered in. You know, there was no good, evil dichotomy in God's creation. You read Genesis, it doesn't go, he created this on Monday and it was good, this on Tuesday and it was good. Wednesday, he said, pause, I might have screwed that up, but I'll start with a clean slate tomorrow, and then got back to good stuff on Thursday. No, everything he created was good. God didn't have a bad day in creation. Creation and the fall are two distinct events. And so we got to ask, well, where was work? And it was before the fall. It was in creation. God inaugurates work in Genesis himself. The work of Genesis is manual labor. You could read the first verses of the Bible as in the beginning, there was work. In the beginning, God was at work. And I love that the entire cosmic creation fits into a work week. And the word for work that's used in the Hebrew is not some special work that's reserved for God. The word that they use for work in this passage is the same word for work that they use for any ordinary human being. So work isn't some necessary evil that got ushered in later on. And work isn't something beneath God that he passed on to us. I love that Jesus says of God in John 5, 17, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And after his resurrection, after the events of Easter and Acts 1, the church is given the, the role and calling to bear witness to God and to Jesus and to walk out this calling. And it's as they're walking out this calling in Acts chapter 6 that we see Stephen's peculiar calling to be a waiter. The top of this passage at Acts chapter 6 verse 1 says, seven men chosen to serve. It says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. 
And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Man, I hope I go down as that one day. (laughs) Philip, a bunch of names I'm not going to pretend to pronounce. Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas of Antioch, and an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. Faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Come on, we see that the kingdom of God is being built. We see that the kingdom of God is moving, and it's both through the teaching of the word and through practical service and work. And in this passage, echoing the points that we just saw about God and his creation, we see four sides of work that we should appreciate and point to tonight and seek to apply as we move forward. The first is work's design, that God gives work to us. We were designed for work. We were created in the image of a creative, working God. But we were created for both work and rest. It's an important point we can't forget because when the world celebrates work and highlights work, so often it's with holding up full schedules like badges or to-do lists like trophies, and rest is is viewed as this kind of selfish luxury. Like you might have heard somebody say, man, you can sleep when you're dead, right? We get to work when we're alive. Yet God tells us, our bodies tell us, how he created us, science tells us that rest is a necessity. And I love in this passage in Acts chapter 6, the, the 12 apostles could have said, all right, we'll take care of that. You know, I, I got some spare time. I can take care of the widows in these hours here, or these hours there. But they, they pass it off to somebody else. And we know it's not because they hate manual labor. A lot of these guys were bivocational. Paul, for instance, he built tents. So it's not like they're, they saw themselves as above the work. But I like to think that they were protecting their rest. Yeah, they could have added another thing to their list, but they didn't. You know, Jesus himself is found taking naps in the Gospels. God is found resting in Genesis. He took a day to rest and instructed the Sabbath law for his people. And I've been reading through Mark, and I read again in Mark this week. It's Mark chapter 2, verse 27. It's where Jesus says the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. He said this because the the problem was the Pharisees had made all these requirements for the Sabbath, and they turned it more into a, a, a curse than a gift to keep it and to hold it true. And in fear of becoming like the Pharisees, turning rest into legalism, most have thrown out weekly rest, the practice of the Sabbath, saying, hey, we don't need to meet the requirement of the Sabbath because it wasn't It says it's not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath, but the first half of that verse says the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people. And, man, let me tell you, I still need rest. (laughs) When you're getting rest, it's easy to say, I could go without it. Then you adopt a child. You get no rest. You realize, no, I need that. I'd like to get some more of that. I could give a bunch of rabbit trails and stories, but Raj still likes to randomly sleep on India time, which means he's up all night. But we'll preach more on rest. Maybe I'll hit on that in coming weeks as we rethink church and rethink the pathways. But tonight I want to return to Ecclesiastes because he finds in this book that that championing work above all else, it's like chasing after the wind. 
So what does he do? Well, I'm, I'll also try pleasure and leisure. But he finds the same thing about that. To champion that above all else and try to find hope in that is like chasing after the wind. Again, we're designed to do both. Go without work long enough. I graduated college. I was looking for a job for months. And you realize, again, you're created to work. Without it, it's like part of our design isn't being filled. And it's important that work is such an important part of our makeup and our design that the pattern isn't six days of rest and leisure and then one day of work. God actually says, hey, six days of work and then one day of rest. It's a huge part of who we are. But as God rested, so do we. He worked hard and he rested. Rest isn't some selfish luxury. It it actually reflects our dignity because we were created in the image of a God who rested. And in the same way that rest speaks to our dignity, though, work also speaks to dignity. And that's the second point I want to look at tonight. You know, the value of human life, our dignity, is in the fact that all of us, man, woman, child, were created in the image of God. It's where we find dignity and value of every human being. Everybody's created in the image of God. And in a similar way, the value of work is found in the fact that we were created again in the image of a creative, working God. And as we turn again to Acts chapter 6, Stephen is called upon to wait on the widows. And he does that again because the the 12 apostles, they say, well, we're not going to do it. And the verse they say that in is in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, where they say, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. When you read it like that, it's kind of hard to get around. It's like, is that a condescending tone that I hear there? Like, are they saying that's way beneath us and we can only do the work of God that's up here? As if, as if waiting tables and serving people food was somehow lower. Is, is that what they're saying? Is that what they're doing? Because to elevate this work above other work would be to remove the dignity that God has placed on all work. But as you dig into the Greek that the author Luke uses, the same word serve that we find in verse 2, where it's talking about serving food. It's the same word he uses in terms of serving the word of God in verse 4. So we see Luke doesn't elevate one over the other. He uses the same word for both. It's serving. The life of community depends on service, and there's an equal dignity. I mean, you consider Stephen. If you keep reading, when he gets pulled out, people slander him, and he gets pulled before the leaders, the religious leaders. This dude can preach. This dude can speak, and yet God found it fitting to make him a a waiter, to have him serve. Man, if if serving is beneath you, leadership will always be out of your grasp. But God elevates the work of serving tables and its dignity, and he equates it to the dignity of preaching the word. You look at Jesus himself, built tables. He was a Nazarene day laborer. You know, our central church holidays, like Easter, points to the cross. Uh, Christmas points to the cradle. But we can't skip over the carpenter shop, where Jesus spent more of his life in carpentry than in vocational ministry. The fact he spent so much time working with his hands, it affirms the dignity of our work, no matter what shape it takes for us. For God, it took different shapes. Genesis creation, he's a gardener. He's a next-level landscaper. And then in the Gospels, you've got Jesus, a carpenter. I think that's why in 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul counsels people that when they become a Christian, it's unnecessary to change what they're doing in life when it comes to marital state or job or social standing. 
And in a society like the one in Corinth that stressed status symbols, sound familiar? That was, that was a big deal. It was striking. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And those two, there's two key words in this passage that I want to look at. Assigned, assignment, and calling. These words are key because in that same letter, a couple chapters later, Paul's giving that famous account of the body of Christ. And he talks about how we're called to relationship with God and we're all given abilities and gifts to build the body of Christ. And he uses those same words as if to say that we too are called, we're assigned with various gifts and talents to build community, to build culture in this world. That's the, the third point, the third uh, thing we want to look at, and that's developing culture. One of my biggest honors over the past year um, as pastor was to go to Stephanie Birch's retirement ceremony. She's not here, so I can both uh, speak very highly of her because she's so humble, but also what was so awesome was there were throwback pictures. Like, she served there for 25 years, all kinds of different styles that she was wearing in those pictures. It was hilarious. I saved some. They're right here. No, just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding, because then she would find me and she would kill me. Or Paul, both scare me. Just kidding. (laughs) But what was powerful about that event was so many people got up and talked about the impact she had on their lives individually. But then they would also share about the things she did for the police force, the way that she had an impact on how police work was done, how issues were dealt with. Like Suffolk is a different place because Stephanie Birch served as a police officer. Her work speaks to our calling to develop culture through our work. And it's not just for police officers or servicemen, but for whatever role we have. The author Lester DeCoster puts it this way. He says, imagine that everybody quits working right now. What happens? Civilized life quickly melts away. Food vanishes from the shelves. Gas dries up at the pumps. Streets are no longer patrolled and fires burn themselves out. Communication and transportation services end. Utilities go dead. Those who survive at all are soon huddled around campfires, sleeping in caves, clothed in raw animal hides. That escalated quickly. I don't know about all that, but his final sentence is profound. He says, the difference between a wilderness and culture is simply work. It's the difference between wilderness and culture. Work doesn't just care for creation. It directs God's creation. It develops and structures it. It forms culture. See, we're called to fill the earth in Genesis, but that doesn't just talk about or doesn't just speak to procreation. It speaks to civilization. That God didn't want to just create a species. He wanted to create a society. And to do that, he didn't create a bunch of humans in a bunch of different cities. He left the work to us to develop culture, to bring order out of chaos like he did in Genesis. Again, we're created in his image, and the work of creating culture in a society, it's, it's this divine project of vast collective creativity for the meeting of needs, and for the flourishing of culture. And our work does just that, turns wilderness into culture through work in different ways, based on different roles, but we all do that. I think it's powerful that even when the Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon, in the book of Jeremiah, God calls his people to cultivate culture. Even when they were in exile for 70 years, God says to his people in Jeremiah 29, this is what the God of Israel says to all the captives. He is exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. 
build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. You know, trust that God has put you where you are. Where you're working, it's not an accident. Your workplace, God is sovereign over it. If he wanted the Israelites to build culture, even in exile, how much more does he want us to do that where we are today? To work towards that is our duty. To cultivate and develop culture. And that's the last point with work is is our duty. And our duty is quite simply to serve. Stephen was actively serving people, loving his neighbor, being the vehicle that delivered God's daily bread to these widows. See, to develop a culture, we need to meet the needs of others. That's our duty, to love our neighbor through practical service. It's a powerful reminder, work is, that we're not called to do life alone. We weren't created to be alone. Work is relational. We talk all the time in church how people aren't projects, right? Each person Christ died for. You take that perspective to work, it can change everything. That people aren't just clients, customers, or contacts. They're people first, people that Jesus died for. Work is relational. It's creative service, but it's also, we can't miss this, competent service. Competent work for our neighbor, it's a form of love. There's a story, it's from a couple decades ago, but it's about this pilot whose plane was, quite frankly, falling apart in the sky. It says the pilot of United Airlines Flight 811 admitted Friday that he had a few doubts whether his jumbo jetliner, crippled by a gaping hole ripped in the fuselage and two of its four engines dead, was going to make it back to Honolulu. Captain David Cronin told reporters that the cockpit's crew's initial calculations showed that the Boeing 747 might have been losing altitude too fast to reach the airport before plunging into the Pacific. Cronin said the 10 by 20 foot section of the fuselage blew out in a tremendous explosion as the plane climbed out of Honolulu on February 24th at between 22,000 and 23,000 feet. We had a number of emergencies, not just one. We had explosive decompression, he said. That's an emergency in itself. Next, we had a number three engine fail. That's also an emergency in itself. Next, we had a fire in the number four engine. That's another emergency in itself. Next, we had to dump fuel in order to stay airborne, he said. Handling the aircraft in the situation we had was very difficult. I love this. All these things generated a bit of concern. Cronin, who remained at the controls throughout the flight, said he sent the second officer, Mark Thomas, below to check the damage in the passenger cabin. When I got downstairs and saw the hole, I knew we had a serious problem, Thomas said. It was like looking outside through a picture window. Cronin said the look on Thomas's face when he returned told everything about the situation below. I love what he says here. He says he didn't have to say a word. I said a prayer for the passengers, and I got back to business. I said a prayer for the passengers, and I got back to business. And in a bunch of maneuvers that broke from the textbook, and they show genius paralleling, what was it, the, the landing on the Hudson, right? He, he pulls off this miracle of getting this plane safely to Honolulu. And in that moment, it didn't matter to the passengers what, what he had said about his faith or, or not, whether he had done that. What mattered is that he did his job with excellence. I love that he says, I I prayed a prayer, and I got back to business. The answer to his prayer, and you know so many prayers in the back of that plane, was that he did his job and his work with excellence and competence. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever you do, do well. Martin Luther said, again, the, the man we hit on to begin, 
He said the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. You know, what's our motivation for our excellence? What's our motivation for our competence? Is it to impress others? Is it to climb the corporate ladder? Because motivation is everything. The context we operate from is everything. But everything Martin Luther taught, everything Jesus taught would say no. We do it to serve and love our neighbor. We do it to serve and love God. Paul says in Colossians 3.23, this powerful verse, if we can grasp it, work as if you are serving the Lord. Think about the implications of that. When you think about grace, grace in the workplace means that just in life, we don't have to prove ourselves to God through works, religious or secular. We already have assurance through God, through Jesus. This frees us from underworking because we're not going to sell God short, but it also frees us from overworking because we realize I, I don't have to prove myself to God. I already have assurance if we're working as if we're serving the Lord. We also don't have to prove ourselves to other Christians. Because many in the church would say, hey, if you're a writer and you believe in God, you should write explicitly Christian books. If you're a musician and you believe in God, you should write explicitly Christian music. Or if you produce things, you should make Christian products, shoes with crosses on them. The idea, this is the idea that the Christian worldview only operates in Christian activities and speaks to explicitly Christian topics. But Christianity isn't solely something we should behold in our work. It should affect how we behold the whole world, like a lens we, we look through. I there's a C.S. Lewis quote I love where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I'll read that again because it's C.S. Lewis and it's deep. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. When I read that verse this week, I thought about Matthew 5, 45, where Jesus says he gives his sunlight, God gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. It's this concept of common grace, grace given to all mankind. And how much of God's common grace comes from the daily labor of others? Like we pray for our daily bread, but when I go get bread with the money I've earned at Food Lion, that's because of a farmer, that's because of a delivery driver, that's because of the people that made the bread, it's because of the employee at Food Lion that probably knows me by name because I'm in there so much. You know, we talk about working to put bread on the table, but without the work of others, it's not readily available. Because of that, we can see, recognize, and value the work, not just of believers, but of non-believers alike, that God works by common grace through all kinds of people. I believe it was Martin Luther that, that talked about the mask. You could think about vehicles that God operates through to deliver his common grace. See, all human beings, again, are made in the image of a working God. That's why they all have value, but then they're also all given skill sets to work in the world. But as we talked about to begin, that the game changer is still grace. Come on, it opens the door to relationship with God which opens the door to transformation, which opens the door to the fruits of the Spirit, and it just snowballs from there. We've said this quote here multiple times, but George McDonald said, the world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Again, Jesus, after Easter in Acts, he, he, he gives us this calling as believers and Christians to, to bear witness to the risen Jesus. Bear witness 
doesn't only speak to sharing the gospel verbally with another, even though that's huge. The implications of that are huge. But this word witness, it speaks to both seeing and hearing. As much as they need to hear it from us, they need to see it from us, especially the people we spend five days, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week with. They need to see it from us. Our witness is also the living of principles and practices of God's kingdom in our workplace. Come on, recognizing work's design, recognizing its dignity, and our duty to serve people and develop culture. What does this idea, working as if you're serving the Lord, look like week to week? How does that affect your Monday through Friday this next week? Well, if we're working as if we're serving the Lord, then we'll say what we mean, (laughs) we'll do what we say, follow through on commitments, be fair, compassionate, transparent, calm, poised, not worried or stressed, generous. You can begin to just list the fruits of the Spirit and all the virtues in the growth list, and it's because through our workplace, God so often does work in us. Jesus joined us in our labor when he took on flesh. He, too, did work as a carpenter, and he wants to join us in our work. Again, work reminds us that we're created for culture, for relationship, but no relationship defines us like our relationship with God. No relationship solves the problem in our narrative but God. Nothing else solves the problem. So maybe you're here tonight and maybe you struggle to engage people with your faith in the workplace. Maybe you struggle with not letting your faith be overbearing and unattractive in the workplace. Or maybe you're just a new believer and you don't know how to carry your faith over to work. You've got a compartmentalized faith where Jesus is over here and then with work it's another me and then there's this here and we put our faith in a box. We put our faith in a, in a weekend. But come on, when you begin to think that maybe work is meaningless, like the author of Ecclesiastes, may you remember to look to eternity, the bigger story we're a part of, the bigger culture we're called to create, the bigger eternal kingdom that we're called to expand. You know, Ecclesiastes, you read that book. I, I like it. and In a way, it's sobering, And it's humbling because we realize that work and and life as a whole, it's not about the decades we spend on earth. It's not about us. There's a bigger God. There's a bigger narrative we're a part of. That is sobering. If you think life is about you, it'll hit you with a heart check. But it's not just sobering and humbling. It's also freeing and releasing because, again, we're freed from overworking because we walk in assurance of God's grace. Grace means that we don't have to clamor for better standing before God because at the foot of the cross, We've got all the grace we need. So we can step into whatever place, whatever workplace God has given us, and by his grace, we can serve him and our neighbor faithfully. Man, if I could have the, the worship team come up, I just want to close with song, but these questions, is this my calling? Am I making a difference? I'm not immune to those questions as a pastor. You know, the same way that a pulpit doesn't elevate me in significance over anybody or whatever anybody does in here, it also doesn't elevate me from those questions that visit you at 4 a.m. in the morning after you've been rocking Raj for an, for an hour. And I remember we got very little sleep last night. I woke up this morning at 6.30. I was like, man, I could go to this base camp or I could sleep in for a couple more hours before I start working on my sermon, right? But I'm so glad I went to base camp, not just because of the people that shared, like Alan Smith did an incredible job, but Man, Chris House just pulled out a few songs, nothing new, nothing world-changing. I've heard Good Good Father 40 million times. And yet he's saying that. And the, the words, I hear the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone, right? 
Man, those words are powerful when you were just up the night before at 4 a.m., just anxious and worried. It's as if God wanted to tell me, hey, you might not have heard me last night, but I want to remind you that I'm pleased and that you're never alone. And I believe he'd want to tell some of you tonight that even when you go to your workplace on Monday and you got questions, man, he's pleased and you're never alone. He's pleased. (laughs) He's proud because you're operating right where he's placed you. As you're faithful and you, in all things, look to glorify God, he's, he's pleased with you as son, with you as daughter, where he's placed you. And that you're never alone. And we can step into our workplace with the same perspective that we step into church, that God wants to meet us there. That God wants to meet us there. So we don't have to live a compartmentalized life where there are times that we have an assurance of God's presence, but then when we clock in on Monday, it's like another experience or another life. Know that he meets you in it through the design, dignity, duty, the developing of culture, that he gives meaning to every hour you clock every week. But man, as we prepare for worship, if if y'all could stand, if you've made work the main thing, you're kind of like the author of Ecclesiastes where you found identity, you've, you've sought to find meaning in work, or if you've made work about yourself, where people have become assets or clients or little more, man, let's pause, let's simply rest, and let's worship. Not, not physical rest, not take a nap, but I would love to take one. I'm going to take one soon. <laughs> but knowing who is on the throne, knowing who extends grace even now, and what that grace means for us, what that grace means for our workplace. God says in Psalm 46 to a people grappling for achievement and position, he says, be still and know that I'm God. Come on, may we do that now, even in our worship. We might labor, feel like we're clawing through the week, but God says again and again, be still, be still and know that I am God. We can rest because we know who is on the throne and who works behind the scenes. We can pause and worship even now and praise because we know who's on the throne. And God, we worship you tonight and we praise you in Jesus' name. We worship you.